back. It's a distraction. I'm through. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. How are you? Let me tell you a little story, Roth. Oh, please. Story about steak night at the McGarrian household. I go and I buy some steaks because I deserve a steak. I'm the dad. Yeah, for steak night. Daddy needs steak. Buy the steaks. I go. I put them on the grill. The grill runs out of gas, which is like, you know, you're always flirting with danger with the gas tank. Like, you never know. Like, you want to use all the gas because it's fucking expensive propane. But you never know when it's going to crap out on you. Because I can, like, I can I can pick it up and be like, well, I think it's got something left in it. But I don't fucking know. So it runs <laughs> out. And a dad like, shake and make a dad face. Yep. All that all that stuff. So I, I run to the grocery store in the middle of the AFC title game. And I, I switch out the tanks. And, like, I don't look at anybody because I'm worried someone's going to spoil the game for me. Which is hilarious because the game turned out to suck. So yeah. then I, I go back. I, I hook up the propane tank. <clears throat> I get the steaks. I throw them on and I come back down to grab them when they're done. And I realize I don't have my, I didn't bring like tongs with me or like a fork, just something to get them off the grill. And I, I think in that moment, I'm like, you know what? I can just grab it with my hand. That's a smart idea. Like I'm going to do Fantastic. that. And so what I do is I lick my fingertips. Cause I know if I lick my fingertips, <laughs> then I it will. It can't hurt you there. Those what, are the rules. They teach this in science class, like the moisture in your, it's why you can put out a candle wick with your fingers because the moisture in your hand takes away the heat before your skin can burn. Mm-hmm. Well, does that work with like a pound of beef? Yeah, yeah. So I, I grab one of them to put onto the thing and it burns a shit out of my hand. I go, fuck, fuck. And it drops down. It drops down on the ground and the ground is like, it's muddy. It snowed here and then all the snow melted. So it's like a fucking slurry of dirt and shit. And I'm like, well, I paid. I don't know, 15, 20 bucks for this fucking steak at Harris Teeter. Like, I gotta, I gotta get it. So I get, so I get the steak. I get the other one off the grill without dropping it. I bring the steaks up and I rinse off, I rinse the mud off one of the steaks. (laughs) And then then I, cause like, and I'm like, listen, as the dad, like this is dad policy, I think in every household, you eat your mistakes. Like dad eats all the burn shit. So I was like, listen, I'm the one who will eat the mud steak because it's my fault. And I wash it off and I and I eat it and I get a little grit and I'm like, you know what? It's not that bad. Not that bad. I did okay. You but, you did a tactical sloppy steak. Like you were that was the move at that time. It was the responsible thing to do was to pour a bunch of water on the meat that you bought. It was a beautiful steak too. I was not gonna let it go to waste. Tough stuff. But it's uh, very brave of you to do that. And then to share it with all of our listeners. You got to do it. That's what you do. You gotta, I, I open myself up to the world. Hey, our guest today is newsletter director at The Athletic and debut novelist Jason Kirk. Jason's book, Hell is a World Without You, is available right now and has already generated over $40,000 for the Trevor Project. Holy shit. Jason, we're going to talk about the novel with you in just a moment. But first, we have to talk about the Super Bowl that no one wanted. And by no one, I mean me. It's going to be the Chiefs and the Niners. We're going to cover that game in full and those teams plenty next week. But first, we have to talk about Sunday's victims. So first off, Jason, have you ever watched a team fuck up as badly as the Baltimore Ravens did in the AFC title game on Sunday? Oh, my gosh. That was... uh... I mean, it's it's it. On the one hand, it feels like wow, what a great job by the Chiefs' defense, right? Just shutting down Lamar Jackson. But right, then, terrific defense. Yeah, yeah. But watching the Ravens just fall apart, like this whole year, they were the team that never fell apart, right? Like yeah. we've seen the Niners have terrible games. We saw the Eagles have lots of terrible games. We saw it constantly from the Cowboys. Um, obviously, the Bills. Every time they go out, it's like I don't know how any, anyone ever beats them, but they lose all the time. Whereas the Ravens were like the one competent team all season long, right? And then all of a sudden. They 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 look like uh they look like the Jets or something. Yeah, it was weird because it was. I, I think you're right that they did seem like a noticeable tick better than every other team all year, which is something that for some reason in football I tend to take that more seriously than I do in other sports. Like that's just a way that you know a team is going to lose the World Series if you see a baseball team that's like that generally. But in that case, it was like they. It wasn't necessarily even that they played that poorly. They played like they were down three scores for the entire fucking game. It was just like a completely baffling approach. It seemed like they didn't ever, didn't ever really give themselves a chance. To be that honest. was the odd thing because <clears throat> prior to the season, John Harbaugh, you know, they, they had their uh, contract dispute with Lamar Jackson, and that was all extremely fucking weird, and it's worth its own podcast. But they bring Lamar back. They give him the contract that he deserves, and then they do the right thing by – 
getting rid of, I believe it was Greg Roman was their former offensive coordinator. I figured they would keep Roman for just 40 years and just suck on offense no matter who who they had, you know, running the thing. And they bring in Todd Monken from Georgia and like instantly that offense has its shit together. They're doing everything right all season long, best rushing offense. They're setting up Lamar to, you know, to make really good passes in the pocket and Lamar like dedicates himself to becoming a better pocket passer and succeeds statistically and aesthetically and with the eye test. And then they play Kansas City and they hand the ball off to their running backs. They have two good running backs, Gus Edwards and Justice Hill. They hand the ball off to the running backs four times. And, you know, they try to have designed runs for Lamar, but those are contained thanks to Steve Spagnuolo and the defense. They run no play action. So, like, why didn't they fucking run the ball, Jason? Why didn't they run more play action passes? So, fuck's wrong You gotta run the ball. You do. Sorry. You you literally have to establish the run. Like you, just, this is the playoffs. Like, that that dumb shit voice. actually matters. In in this league, at this level of this that, business, you yeah. gotta establish. That's right, yeah. Jason. If you every, want to win the National all. Football League, I was gonna say, somebody okay has to say right. the full name of the league in the next twenty seconds, or I'm gonna fucking freak out. But I'm glad. Thank you, Drew. Good good work. <laughs> yeah. It. Uh, it. It. It felt like they kept expecting um, Mahomes to just explode and put up a bunch of points, but that never happened. And so they were, they were, it's like they were keeping pace in the wrong game, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, it was fascinating because at the beginning of the game, it really looked like the Chiefs could do whatever they wanted, like right at the beginning. Like they were, they were scoring. They scored all of their points. There, there was no scoring in the in the in the second half of that game. The Ravens kicked a field goal. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so right. But so yes, to your so. Point. Um, but the Chiefs didn't score, and so so the defense did their job. Baltimore's defense did their job. You hold the Chiefs to 17 points. You've done your fucking job. And if you have Lamar, you have Zay Flowers, you have Mark Andrews back, and you pair him with Isaiah Likely, and you have the backfield that you have, and you have the line that you have, it seems like you should be able, like, at, at the very least, if you are not going to succeed with some of the, thing, some of the things you have succeeded with all season, the designed runs, and deep passes and things like that. You know, you you're not your defense is playing well enough where you can you can do basic shit. You can play as if the game is tied and not like you're down by fucking 30. So I found that a touch curious. And I found it even more curious that they kept committing personal fouls every five seconds. That was very odd to me, Jason. That part too, the constant dumb <clears throat> stuff just feels very off for uh for that team. It betrayed poor coaching. Uh can we uh, right now have the world's only reasonable discussion about Lamar, ja- Lamar Jackson's performance in that game? Because he played badly. He did. He 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 was hamstrung in a lot of ways. Um, but I think I'd, I'd like to try to suss out whether or not he played badly just because he had a bad game or whether it was due to the stakes at hand, because that's sort of the easy way to go. And that's sort of like, you know, during the game, you'll get, you know, people, you know, posting to Twitter being like, oh, I, I dread the Lamar Jackson discourse. Like, it, you know, sort of dreading debates that may not actually arise. Um, but we may as well dredge it up here because we are not going to be annoying about it. Jason, do you believe that Lamar played badly in that game because of the circumstances or was it essentially out of his control? I mean, I think to me, the main thing is the Chiefs defense is really, really good, which feels like a thing we're still getting used to right like pivoted so much from um all in on offense to like mm. our offense is like you know generally just two guys and then all the yep. other investments on defense right. so like it feels easy to overlook how wildly improved they are in defense to the point of being one of the very best and for me that's the main thing like um if this had happened in week 13 you know we wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't totally change our assessment of Lamar Jackson. I understand that's how the playoffs work. You know, in a, in a big game, it, it sort of recontextualizes everything that came before it. Um, I don't know. It's just one of those games. Uh, a really good player went up against a really good defense and uh, didn't get a ton of help from uh, from the play calling. But for me, it, it, it doesn't change too much of how I think about Lamar Jackson going forward. It does sort of change how I... Or I, I shouldn't say I, I have thought about the Chiefs this way for the bulk of the season, mostly because of their woes at wideout. Right? Their wideouts are fucking terrible. Even though, like, Marquez Valdez-Scantling finally decided to catch a couple of important <laughs> balls in that game, right? <laughs> but on defense, I knew that, you know, they had drafted George 
Carl Aftis was pretty good, but they had also drafted Trent McDuffie, who's already a fucking all pro. Um, they had Legarius Sneed on the other side. They had a couple good safeties, including Justin Reed. They had good linebackers, even though Willie Gay was out of that game. And of course, they have Chris Jones, who's going to be a free agent uh, this coming offseason, but is, uh, you know, I think you could argue right now that he is the most important defensive player in the league ahead of Aaron Donald. He's he was the just most that. important player in that game. I mean, yeah, he's just he's, easily the most impact that any player made in that game yeah so he's fucking unreal but at the same time if you're lamar jackson to prove your bona fides that's the defense you're gonna have to beat you're not gonna get to the super bowl by facing the fucking chargers defense every week right so uh roth what did you think it feels it feels unfair to blame him for it though i think i mean all of this i think we've done a good job so far i don't want to screw it up being normal about lamar jackson and i think that's great and we should take a moment to pat ourselves on the back actually i think i should he should move to wide out for how normal yeah it's a choke job it's a disgrace i have a hockey question i'm gonna add to the end of this statement (laughs) there's a lot but think about what a great punt returner he'd make roth yeah oh wow yeah (laughs) you shouldn't me think of the trick plays you could do yeah be great yeah, he, honestly, he's always been more of a Charles Woodson type to me, kind of a gadget <laughs> D-back return guy. Uh, to me, though, it's like, I don't know what you could have expected asking any quarterback to throw that many passes or in under those circumstances in that game. Like, the the bit that I think is, like, kind of frustrating about it is that, like, he did make some bad decisions, especially late. There were some throws that, you know, like, were not, Exactly right. He made some great throws, too. It was just one of those deals where it's frustrating to, you know, have this be one of the three last football games that we're going to watch this year. I don't think there's really a whole lot to take from it. They weren't really in it. Like, that's not how you would scheme it in the future. I don't imagine it is how they're going to scheme it if they get the chance to play the Chiefs again. And like, but they duffed it so bad and they failed to adjust so thoroughly that there's only so much that you can really take away from it like we now know that this approach does not work everything else to me is like still kind of on the table in terms of like could it work could like some modified version of this could lamar jackson beat the chiefs like yeah sure but like i haven't seen anything even remotely close to that including in the second half when it would have been an opportunity to for instance look at the shit that didn't work in the first half and try something different my my one uh my one thing the one thing i would say is that i i do want to see how they rebound next season because <clears throat> as good as Lamar is, he had some errant passes in that game. And I don't mean the, the, I think he had one of them picked off, but um, you know, he had a lot of off target throws and it's the sort of thing where I don't want to blame it on the rain, not to like make that joke, but like, like I remember like when Brock Purdy, you know, was, was throwing errant passes against the Packers. We were like, well, it might be the rain. Cause he's taking a glove off off and on. And suddenly rain is like a part of the, like the discussion now when it's no one gives a fuck about the rain. Like you're supposed to be able to play well in the rain. So I'd like to see, I would like to see next season, how Lamar does in similar circumstances, rain or shine, Jason Kirk. You know, I think it's probably cause he threw that one pass to himself. That was uh, very selfish. That was, yeah. that was glory, that glory was, hog behavior. You got to distribute the rock. You can't. That just, was that, that was, was a cool play. That was one of those moments where it, I think Romo has Tony Romo has calmed down a little bit during the postseason. I think there was like a story in the New York Post that was kind of anonymously sourced. That was kind of felt like it was coming from his superiors more or less to the extent that like Tony Romo needs to do his reading because you can't just go on there and make a bunch of like hooting sounds all game long. <laughs> and he was whooping like a fool on that play <laughs> where Lamar Jackson caught the ball. But I was also doing that. Right. So I, I had to hand it to him. Sometimes you, know you do got to hand it to Tony. It's because Jason, it's because he did something once he caught the ball. Cause it's happened before yes, yes. where the quarterback catches his own errant pass, but then he goes for like two yards. Like, so he, yeah. he saved an interception. This one, he like, he ran 15 yards for a first down after he caught the ball. And then Romo, who I think actually gets too much shit. Like the complaints about Romo to me have grown more, much more annoying than Romo. But uh, Romo was like, anytime, anytime the quarterback catches his own pass, the the color guy is always like, "Whoa, have you yeah. ever seen that before?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It happens like once a season. It's like twice. the um, false start on everyone but the center thing, and everyone acts like that never happens. It happens like once a week. Yeah, it was cool. That the thing that I liked about the well, beyond the fact that it looked cool and that it made 
Tony Romo briefly speaking tongues was the uh the list of quarterbacks that have caught their own passes like there was like you know some Elias whatever thing that came out and the thing it has happened before Lamar Jackson is the only cool guy ever to do it the list of <laughs> quarterbacks yeah, like Brad that have, Johnson and shit Brad Johnson Kent Graham was on there it was a <laughs> lot of like really dark giants flashbacks like that's apparently a thing that you have to be able to do if you wanted to play for Dan Reeves with the Giants like that was something they'd get you in workouts Make Danny I, uh, Cannell catch his own pass. I'm newly endeared to Kent Graham ever since Immaculate Grid. Because anytime the Giants and the Cardinals intersect, I'm like, oh, baby. Yeah. Not Dave Brown, go. but Kent Graham. That's okay. That's, that's your choice. Your grid. Uh, let's talk about the Lions, Jason. Uh, they looked in the first half like they were going to hang a 50-burger on the Niners before it all suddenly, and I mean suddenly, went to shit in the second half. Should I be devastated for Lions fans after they blew a 24-7 lead in the NFC title game? Or... Should I take the long view that this was the best season truly in their history in the Super Bowl era? The best season they've had since I was alive. Feel free to use examples from your own life. As you can. <laughs> I was and just going to say, yeah. I am uh, I'm wearing an, an Atlanta Hawks hoodie, if that indicates where I'm going to go with this. Um, some loaded words coming up. As an Atlanta Falcons fan, mm. um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, this sucks, man. This sucks. Like, you know, we were all rooting for the Lions here. Um, everyone, like, this is the people's team. It's so cool. They, they're, yeah, they're finally doing it. They really, they're up by so many points, they're going to make it. And then, holy shit, that third quarter. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. it was the kind of thing where it's like, oh, I've, I've seen this. Y'all are going to remember this forever. That sucks, man. Um, I don't, it, it's a tough thing. When I, when I think back on like the 2016 Falcons, the team that did do things before 28-3, I'm like, they were so fun. It was so fun to watch them go five wide and those receivers and like Matt Ryan at his peak, the offense was awesome. We never felt out of any game, um, all that. So like there are positive memories that will emerge. Like Lions fans will think like, you know, we love the aggressiveness. We, even. Up until the, the very final moments of aggressiveness, which will probably uh, be quibbled over forever. But, like, we we loved pushing our way onto center stage. And, you know, there are good memories to take from this year. And Lions fans will be able to hang on to those while also this will hurt at least a little bit for a long, long time. Yeah, it's like an indoctrination. It's like, you're welcome to the club, man. Now you, yeah, hey, y'all are here. I mean, you know. it's it's like the Alliance have always been too bad to have this moment, right? That's right. I think and, that's the part where I've been like really <laughs> probably overly tender about asking our Michigan coworkers about this because, I mean, I just haven't like asked Lauren how she's doing since it happened. Right. But I feel like this is – that's exactly what it is. I mean, like they had never in their lives, our Michigan coworkers had not seen a Lions playoff game. Right? They're like I was, they're I was young, alive for but their they're last not like sixteen. I was alive for their last NFC title game appearance, but I'm forty seven. And <laughs> yeah. not only that, they went against legitimately one of the best teams I've ever seen in the ninety one Commanders. They had a different was, name at the time, of course. Yeah, but yeah. it was the Ripping Commanders, and that team was a fucking juggernaut. They were they had they were all pros. Everywhere. It was a fucking insane team that they got destroyed by. It wasn't I think that's a good point that Jason makes about fandom though, that this is like you have to get to a certain level before you can suffer like this. That this is actually like I'd imagine not a the sort of achievement that you're gonna be holding on to with both hands as a treasured one or whatever, but and it's the way I feel about the Mets making the World Series in twenty fifteen and then getting like rinsed out of there in an embarrassing fashion by the Kansas City Royals, the dynastic Kansas City Royals, was I didn't think they'd ever be in the World Series. Like mm-hmm. as long as they had those owners, also like maybe as long as I was alive. It just had not occurred to me that that was a realistic possibility. And so it sucked, but most of what I remember about that, you know, beyond watching like Eric Hosmer celebrate on my team's home field <laughs> when it was over, I do remember that too, is that it was, you know, you're surprised by good things happening right up until you're sort of <laughs> really unsurprised by a bad thing happening. And I don't know. I think it does sort of balance itself out in time. But that's, you know, that was nine years ago. Well, also, they're they're built to last, Jason. They have a very, very good roster, particularly mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. the line of scrimmage. They had an insane draft uh, last spring. They got they got Brian Branch, Sam Laporta, Jack Campbell, and Jameer Gibbs all in one go, which is, like, incredible. Uh, and they have a good coach. Like, I'm ready to say Dan Campbell's a good coach. But 
our own Ray Ratto, he was on here the other week predicting that Campbell would be undone by his own moxie in one of these playoff games. And then he wrote the very same thing after the NFC title game had ended. Now, Ray's not here to defend himself right now, which is perfect for our purposes because we can dump on him all we like. I'm happy to play Ray if you'd like. uh, Blow it out your ear. Jason, do you believe Dan Campbell was too aggressive in that game? I so on on two levels here. One being I um, am fine with the like analytics brain, which is it's funny to think of like Dan Campbell as an analytics guy because you know it's seems, incredibly funny to think of right? him as an analytics guy. <laughs> like 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 somebody was posting uh, after the game like oh the the nerds have taken over the game. Dan Campbell's a nerd, right? You mean that guy? <laughs> Look at him. The the Hulk upper upper Midwestern Hulk is a nerd to you. Yeah. So like on that level, I'm cool with the decision. Like honestly, in Matt. That's what I would have done. So, like, I'm fine with it from that perspective. Like, yep. sure, I think we can get three yards, you know? Um, the other is this sort of, like, LOL memes-based analysis where I'm like, that is Dan Campbell's character. That is the role he plays on my Sunday. He's the guy who just does things. Like, mm-hmm. when he, earlier in the year, when he went for, he went for the two-point conversion from, like, the eight-yard line, that's awesome. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I am here for, for people playing characters, fulfilling their roles, doing the thing i want them to do because it entertains me and he is perfect at that so like in that moment i'm like i don't mind the decision and maybe it would like odds are it was gonna work right like odds are they can gain three yards um and and also at the same time regardless of whether it worked i'm glad he did it because it was the most Dan Campbell moment in a in a litany of Dan Campbell moments. Well, also, how do you think they got to the NFC title game in the first place? By doing that shit. Like, there, there, there was analytics that said Dan Campbell's decision-making during the regular season added X number of yards or points or expected victory value or whatever the fuck. Like, I, I'm talking now like Phil Simms. But anyway, it, there was a tangible re- – there was tangible research that said that his decisions had a – proven benefit to that team and resulted in if not more yards and more points than than you know a win here or or a win there so you have to keep doing that if you change who you are right in the middle of the playoffs even though you say oh it's the playoffs are different you know to me like i the thing that i would ding campbell for was not being aggressive enough at the end of the half when they were up 21 7 and they they kicked a field goal to make it 24-7, and I had a flashback to Bill O'Brien uh, going up 24 nothing on the Chiefs before just absolutely pissing that lead away in five seconds or less. And they were not they were not that far from – like I, I remember I saw Dan Campbell talking to the refs like, how far is it? How far are we away from the goal line? Because like it was like he, – and he said after the game, he's like, if, if, it's, if it's ever so far away, then we'll, I guess we'll kick it. But if it, if it had been like a yard closer, he would have gone for it. And I really want him to fucking go for it and just punch it in and be done with it. Because, But anyway, now I'm, I'm talking and I've left you nothing else to say, Jason. Uh, yeah, did you like it when that happened, Jason? Or did you I, dislike I lo- it? I loved it. I loved that shit. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. I liked no, it well. I, I honestly, I, in addition to all the strategic whatever, I, I really think having that mindset and being consistent about it, I mean, it 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 fits their entire team. It, I really do believe the thing announcers say, like this is telling your players you believe in them. Like, yeah, they're, it's they're the give a shit rah rah team, mm-hmm. and they they should go out that way as well. You know, like that is how they should live and die, and it's it's what they did, and uh, it was interesting, if nothing else. Because if yeah. you turn what? into a different coach during the playoffs, your players are going to be like, "What the fuck?" It's got like, well, I mean, that's you're, you're Sean McDermott now. That's what we were just complaining about with Baltimore, right? That like if yep. you let mm-hmm. the moment sort of like get the upper hand on you, then especially with Campbell, I think the idea of a version of Dan Campbell that is a conservative play caller is like Jim Tom Sula. Like it's just like a guy, <laughs> a guy that the players like playing for who is a, like a good coach and, you know, gives good speeches or whatever, but is otherwise right down the middle. Like that adds a lot less value than what he's done all year long. I have one more question before the break, and I want to ask Jason, can we just appreciate the fact that Brock Purdy actually got to play the entire NFC title game this time? <laughs> For once, and didn't yeah. have his elbow shredded 20 minutes into the fucking start time. 
Yeah, and it was also it's interesting to like now look at what the Super Bowl matchup is, and it's like, oh well, of course, of course, the team that you know almost made the Super Bowl last year without a quarterback now has a quarterback, and they made the Super Bowl. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. Like right. the road was so complex, but the end result is, uh, oh yeah, this is what we expected twelve months ago. Yeah, I was initially kind of salty about the matchup just because it it felt too normal, and I wanted a team I hadn't seen the Super Bowl before, and so on. Right, I still think it's going to be a pretty fun game. They're both really good teams, and yeah. I, like I've so I, this is me. I'm putting this on the record uh, just so everyone can know that I'm coping privately with what's happening. But it is uh, it's still kind of a drag. But the Niners are pretty amazing. Like, I didn't love watching them come back and. We've had commenters get mad that we've run like three different stories about the Lions and, you know, like crying in my bathtub, like the Detroit Lions 2020. (laughs) And we haven't mentioned that the Niners staged this incredible comeback and we're totally convincing. Getting on the record here, uh, they did indeed come back. It was it was pretty cool to watch, provided um, that you could enjoy something like that, which I could not. The other thing I'll I'll say before I I go to the fake ad is that, you know, I think Brock Purdy more than proved that he's legit particularly after a first half you know he he didn't throw the ball particularly well in the Packers game until the final drive he was terrible in the first half against uh Detroit and when he has errant throws that is instantly when people like me uh you know are basically uh you know see him for his draft status only you know it's Mm -hmm. like oh he missed the guy it's like oh see Mr. Irrelevant this is this is always the guy he was gonna be Skylar Thompson would have made that throw. That's why he was taken four rounds earlier. Right. And that's, it's it's actually not that different from Lamar, you know, throwing a few errant passes in the AFC title game where it's like, you have all the proof you need and you can ignore everything else that you see because you have enough to justify whatever you, whatever you really want to think. But then he was brilliant in the second half, particularly with his feet. That was the really unexpected thing. He made some brilliant brilliant throws and and so i i think he's a more than worthy opponent for patrick mahomes even if i'm definitely not gonna pick against patrick mahomes again uh before we cut to the break i just wanted to ask you uh are you moving to a new city are you horny well chippendales movers have you covered with chippendales all of your belongings are automatically insured also insured your wife's taut nipples because all our right. hunky movers do all of That's their fine. work shirt free. This is the one time you'll wish your move took longer. That's Chippendale's movers. Get your quote today. We'll be right back with Jason Kirk. I don't need to say taut nipples, I don't think. The distraction is sponsored by Blue Land. Did you know that an estimated 5 billion with a B plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away each year? That's not bad enough. Most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy to ship, and that leads to excessive carbon emissions. Plus, those products are often filled with nasty ingredients like chlorine and ammonia. It's a lose-lose situation for you and for the planet. Blue Land is not like that. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and better for the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. The idea is simple. They offer refillable cleaning products with a beautiful, cohesive design that looks great on a counter. Fill your reusable bottles with water, drop in the tablets, and wait for them to dissolve. You'll never have to grab bulky cleaning supplies on your grocery run again. I can attest to all of this because I'm using it at home. They sent us some stuff and it's great. We use it for all different purposes. Hand soap for dishwasher, detergent for the laundry. It really is an elegant solution to this problem that is otherwise a big, ugly jar that you have to go buy at the store and refill all the time. Also, it really is the case in my experience that the clean is as good or better than any of the commercial things we've gotten. And also, I don't have to you know, recycle a bunch of junk that probably might not get recycled anyway. Does that sound interesting to you? If so, good news. Blue Land has a special offer for distraction listeners. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash distraction. You won't want to miss this. That's blueland.com slash distraction for 15% off. We're back with Jason Kirk. All right. Uh, we have subjected you to a lot of NFL talk, Jason. It's, it's time to talk about you. It's time to talk about your novel. This is your first novel. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Uh, 
Did you ever try to write one before you wrote Hell is a World without you? So I've done um, a bit of creative writing, honestly, like kind of all my life, like middle school, college, whatever. Uh, it was just sort of a sort of a hobby type thing. Um, and I had picked up, gotten back into it, I guess, like late in the 2010s. Um, and then right when, uh, you know, the quarantine stuff hit and everybody lost their jobs, um, Spencer Hall, Richard Johnson, Alex Kirshner and I all, all, uh, all left the same place, SB Nation. And we did a like mixed fiction, nonfiction college football slash Western thing. That's right. Um, which was a lot of fun, you know, like we got to, we got to write, uh, take all sorts of shots at the NCAA, both uh, via sports journalism and via like inventing a gang of like uh, sharpshooting lady um, thieves in the wild west. So, so that was fun. And it was a, you know, it was a nice, uh, I guess, pivot toward actually publishing fiction. Um, and then spent uh, f- large parts of four or five years ultimately, both before then and after then on, on putting together this novel. I have to think that <clears throat> writing the, um, I guess the the combined novel with with other writers that sort of did that lessen the intimidation factor of having to write an entire novel by yourself. Maybe so. Maybe to to an extent. Yeah, it was. Uh, it it sort of felt like putting together a website. Really, like it's just a big big website. You know, like like when you do like a season preview package for whatever your sport is, or like a, a the, the opening day of a launching a new website. You're going to have a lot of big stories from a from a variety of writers, and they're all going to have something you know some things in common. So ultimately, it was like trying to thread a, a story through the real life history of the NCAA, um, and I guess like sort of playing the editor role on that project it at the same time gave me this sense of like what it means to have a single um coherent vision for a for a full project so it was a little bit best of both worlds and kind of a transition in a bunch of ways so you wrote about a milieu that you grew up in and that i have not read a great number of novels that were set in our own uh, kelsey mckinney did kind of like the big 12 version of this with uh God Spare the Girls, which was a is set in an evangelical sort of setting, but in Texas. Yours is like more or less aligned with how you grew up, but I have not. This is a. I mean, I'd love for you to talk about about your book, but the question that I had was sort of: Was there anything when you sat down to write a sort of a coming of age book about somebody in an evangelical community? Was there any sort of touchstone, like a book that you had read? in the past that you found like sort of useful as a signpost there, or was this where you felt like you were kind of out there on your own trying to figure out how to write this type of book? So with writing about this very specific world in a fiction format, um, like obviously there's lots of great books about religion. Kelsey's book, which came out like as I was writing this one, I read it and I was like, yes, this is great. This is, you know, this, this is a, a different, part of this world um i especially like the ending of her book which um there are people who are like oh this is too negative and then it's proven over and over again in real life that like no no she was right she's totally right (laughs) yeah um but yeah like there are lots of books about growing up in harsh religious worlds and um growing up in subcultures lots of stories about growing up in like cults lots of stories about lapsed catholics but this very specific um sort of non-denominational um evangelical sort of ranging some from somewhere between charismatic and fundamentalist like just these big box churches that are just all over the country um and growing up immersed in that like around the time of i guess the 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 evangelical surge toward um like their their decades long political experiment really starting to pay off, right? Like right. around the time of the election of George Bush's, which is exactly the time period I'm writing about. Um, there's just so much of that. In addition, the like alternate reality evangelical pop culture, which I think most people know of as like, uh, oh, there's like the left behind books. That was a thing, right? Or like, oh, I remember jars of clay, right? Yeah. Or uh, <laughs> you know, you know, you've, you've got you've heard so of a- deep on this in your interview with uh the buddy action cookbook where you you actually like tap there's like he mentioned you know that there'd be like uh whatever like a evangelical version of limp biscuit and you're like yeah that band was and then you just like said some horrible combination of words but there's definitely like there's like a give me something to praise version of that song that was recorded by a different band 
Oh yeah, yeah. Like literally name any any genre and there is an evangelical version of it. And people try to test me on this. They'll say, oh, ho, ho, what about black metal? I am wearing a Christian black metal band's hoodie in my author headshot, okay? Like, <laughs> don't play with me on this. I mean, literally any genre. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, uh, like a novel that tied together all that stuff, there are so very few examples of it. And one of the very few in all of fiction that I found is the movie Saved, the 2004 movie Saved with Mandy Moore, um, and which, you know, I was thrilled when the writer and director of that movie gave me, like, my cover blurb because I'm like, oh, my God, this is, you know, in a lot of ways, this is the spiritual successor. And, like, the things I love about that movie are it knows what to make fun of and what to not make fun of. Um, like, it's, 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 it's ruthless about stuff that deserves to be torn apart, and at the same time, it's, like, loving toward its characters, and it shows these kids, like, they just want to go to a Christian rock concert. They're not going to spend 10 minutes laughing about the fact that Christian rock exists. They're just going to go see this band they fucking like, right? Yep. And it, it presents these people in this world at face value. And ultimately, that was like, that's what I wanted to do. Take a bizarre world that I very, very rarely see accurately depicted in fiction and just walk people into it. Like, if they came from it, I want them to come with me and we're going to get through it. And we're going to learn some things. We're going to feel better by the end. It'll suck along the way, but we'll feel better by the end. And if they're not from that world at all, then, and this is a thing I've heard from like lots of readers, like, oh, weird. Now I, now I understand my weird neighbors better. I understand yeah. why those weird kids in the high school cafeteria were like that. And I'm like, yes, yes, thank you. I was going to say, this is one of the rare promotional campaigns by an author that I've seen online that I've actually enjoyed being witness to. Like I've sat through, you know, I, it's what you got to do. And especially in this situation where you're basically doing your own sort of like PR push for the book. There's still a lot of the people, like the Goodreads reviews and stuff that you flagged. I mean, some of them have been people sort of, uh, you know, just enjoying the book on its own merits. But there's also a lot of people that grew up like that, that I think had not seen any sort of depiction of it, like sympathetic or not. And it is, I think, you know, we were talking about this uh, in a different venue, but there's a lot of ways I feel to... uh sort of feel provincial in this world. I had not had any experience of, you know, being around. I knew about it, you know, because it was like a force in our politics and our culture to a certain extent, but it had always been covered in this very sort of like helicoptery, top-down sort of way. And to see people from that community with that experience, either that stayed in it or didn't, reading your book and having it clearly resonate with them, I think that feels like a pretty... uh powerful thing for an author to get to have that experience like not just to be there early but to sort of help people feel a little bit less alone in what i mean i gather is a pretty isolating and sometimes pretty punishing way of growing up yeah like ultimately my two main goals were to um hopefully help people feel seen who have so very rarely felt seen in fiction and to um you know to help other people understand but yeah it uh it's this thing where basically i just wrote the book that i would have wanted someone to hand me which is kind of all you can ever do you know like yeah i mean it's the right way to go yeah like top to bottom every decision in there like there, like you know there's there's there are lots of moments where it's like well that was a creative choice <laughs> and like maybe you like it maybe you don't but like top to bottom every single page is like all I could do was design the book that I would have wanted someone to give me um, that would have made me feel like, oh, awesome. I wasn't the only one. Because, um, like, you know, lapsed Catholic. Everybody knows what that term means. Everybody knows it. Whether you're Catholic or not, the you know that term. The most represented in our culture. <laughs> yes. <laughs> lapsed Catholics do not have a problem feeling seen in pop culture. Yep. They're endless right. And I'm fucking Every second, too. <laughs> Jewish people where their entire Judaism is like sandwiches. Yeah, man. Like, we're out here like if, and we're very well seen. If you watch well Comedy seen. Central for like five hours, you will hear both of those things about 7,000 times, right? Yep. Whereas people like me... Ha we 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 have been shut up for a long time, which is funny because we come from such a loud world, right? <laughs> we were raised by the loudest people in the world, and then we we leave church and we're like, oh my god, I don't ever want to talk about that ever again. I hope no, no one ever <laughs> notices that I left. Like that was scary and weird. I don't even want to think about it. Which I've heard a lot about it. I've heard a lot of that as well. Like I hadn't well, thought I about this stuff in a decade. You know, well, I would um, assume you wouldn't want people to also knowing what they know about evangelical the evangelical political movement in America, that if you say you're evangelical, they will assume that you have 
a lot of the qualities that maybe some of our worst evangelical leaders have. Would would that be correct to say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like the Catholic example, you could say like, I'm still kind of Catholic in some way, or I'm still completely Catholic in every way. I don't like the diddling. No diddling. (laughs) (laughs) Like you could say, I am just as Catholic as ever, but now I am a Doris Day Catholic. Now I actually vote for poor people, you know, I'm, or like, you know, I am a Catholic and I'm fine with gay marriage. Like you can say all that stuff. Saying... I am a Southern Baptist, and I support trans people. You, if you say that, you've just confused everyone, right? So, like, <laughs> yeah. that's not possible, sir. Right? Right. I mean, it kind of, it, honestly, it kind of isn't because, like, you hear about politics so much more in that world than you hear in, you know, the average religious uh, situation, or at least a very um, aggressive, negative kind of politics. Like, you know, there's tons of politics in every religion, but um, yeah, I mean, it is a thing where you really do have to to divorce yourself from everything you grew up as and you're going to lose family members like there's cousins i haven't talked talked to since the 2016 election um like it 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 is so tied in in and connected with a very specific political movement and so inseparable from it that like to leave one thing is to leave everything at once that's tough how i I wanted to ask you I, i think it ties to it how has your own relationship with your faith, what was it like when you were growing up and what is it like now? What has it changed? Have you left the faith and come back? Have you, you know, what, what was your, what, how has that relationship progressed over your lifetime? So the journey for me is basically um, from like super desperate, earnest, committed, terrified, um, constantly panicking about, am I doing enough? Am I, am I taking this nation for Christ? Like, Yes, every everything you think of, of about the Bible thumper at your high school, that was me. Um, I'm going to burn also, in hell! Yeah, yeah, I thought I was, yeah. Yeah, I completely believed I was. Um, like, you know, while also doing, like, jackass stunts with my friends and starting metal bands and, you know, just, like, yeah. average dumbass teenage shit. Um, all that the, the alpha and the omega of the yes, teenage experience. That's me. That's, me. that's what Staring into the eternal flame <laughs> and then also learning how to play Eruption on a guitar, but like not very well. <laughs> that is every page of this novel, yes. <laughs> um, and then in college, I had my like hardcore agnostic phase, um, you know, and it was in hindsight, it was like a hard pivot. <laughs> like it was a, it was a swift rebrand, like, <laughs> <laughs> But all of it was still deep down right there, right? And, and it wasn't about I am smarter now. It is about I'm angry now and I don't know how else to convey it than to just lash out at everything I've ever thought. Because like, you know, when you can't separate um, political belief from religious belief from the way my friends are treated, from you know, to throw away this one belief about God was to throw away all of it, you know? Um and then I kind of just didn't think about it for like a decade until on the Shutdown Fullcast, our like dumbass college football podcast that goes off topic all the time, um, we talked about religion here and there. And I started hearing from listeners like all around the country in surprising places who were telling me like versions of my own story. And they're saying like, holy shit, you're unlocking memories. And I'm like, well, you're doing the same for me. And we're having this little like, you know, that moment of recognition that lapsed Catholics get, we're getting it. And it's like, oh my God, I we're allowed to talk about this, <laughs> right? Like we left church 10 years ago and we're, we're allowed to talk about it. That's crazy. Um, so like ultimately those conversations led me to, you know, to think and study and actually go back and actually challenge. And, you know, this book project was four years of therapy. That was pretty hardcore therapy at times. Um, digging up things, deciding what I actually want to keep, what actually defines me, um, what I can actually hang on to and go back to. And like, yeah, I've come back around to a version of Christianity that like tons of Christians would say is not Christian. And I'm like, oh, whatever, you're not in charge. Um, <laughs> right. So like ultimately for me, it's like, you know, Jesus said the the people who are uh, who are on the team are the people who treat the least of society as if they are God. There, you know, there are a couple different statements of Jesus you can combine to that thought. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's it. What more do I need than that? What more do I, like, I don't need to believe that the universe's creation was specific to a literal interpretation of the book of Genesis in order to say we should treat poor people as if they are divine. Like those things are, are those things do not have to go hand in hand, right? Like right. I can say like, yeah, there's big bang. Maybe it was God. Maybe it was something else. I don't know. I wasn't there. Regardless. I was actually, so I can tell you. <laughs> okay, cool. Great. So now we've, now we figured that one out. <laughs> but but I think like, the, re- there's something interesting about the way that the politics of this 
it, I mean, there are dual politics, I think, but you've written really intelligently on your newsletter. There's the Vacation Bible School podcast, I believe the first explicitly Bible-related podcast that we have mentioned here on Distraction, <laughs> a multitude production. Uh, there's a lot of, like, you seem to take very seriously the the text itself and the ideas underneath it, which is something that I always admire in people who are, you know, more steady in their faith than I am. It also seems as if like that puts you at loggerheads with the movement that you grew up in ideologically, but then also just in terms of how to be in the world in a way that you wouldn't think would necessarily be the case for something that is so, you know, ostentatiously, or, you know, whatever, like, maybe not exactly as ostentatious, well, as ostentatiously in its presentation grounded in the word mm-hmm. or whatever. How does that conflict, like, how do you navigate that? It's Other so than, fun. I guess, probably angrily <laughs> to a certain it's, extent. It's a blast is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> to go from, I mean, honestly, it is. Like, to go from growing up being told, like, you need to read your Bible at least an hour a day. You need to read this study Bible written for you by some white guy. Uh, we're going to memorize parts. We're going to compete to see who's the best at remembering parts. We're going to see compete to see who's the best at finding parts. Um, like, to told to be obsessed with this book, but also to know fucking nothing about it which is the thing you eventually realize once you go back to it, um, is like it on one level, it gave me this ground, like base level knowledge to where now I go back. And like when we're researching for an VBS episode or like, you know, I'm reading like actual Bible scholars, I'm like, Oh my God, literally everything they told me was wrong. Like I'll remember something that like, I hadn't even thought about this one in, in decades. And yeah, that was wrong too. Like literally every episode is just me bringing up things I was told in Sunday school that were complete lies. Um, so like on the one level, it's given me this understanding of both, both, um, what the Bible can be and everything that is said about it, that is a lie on the other, I I think I've come to a place where it's like, this, this book is really cool. It's, it's history. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's poetry, it's philosophy, it's theology. Um, I don't have to say every word is a fact and I'm certainly not going to say every word is fiction. Um, it's a fascinating library document from a group of people over the course of a thousand years and anyone can learn from it. And it's kind of difficult to understand like Western culture, Middle Eastern culture, ancient culture without some understanding of it. The fact that it's been weaponized against so many people, um, for the past, call it 1500 or so years, (laughs) doesn't mean that the book itself is, uh, is something to, to get rid of. So like, I guess on one level it's reclaiming it in a way, but on the other, it's like, it's just fucking fun to read. Honestly, it is like, which is very funny because it used to be homework with my soul on the line, but now it's like, that's one of my favorite books. (laughs) I had a, uh, I had a faux pas. You know, so so uncommon for me to to talk out of turn, but my I have I have a brother. My brother Alex he uh, he recently converted to Catholicism, so like the opposite of a last lapsed Catholic, big Catholic now. And sometimes I forget because he's not he doesn't proselytize or anything like that. And we were talking and about the Bible it, like in passing, and I remember saying, "Oh well, I started reading it, and I was like, well, this is illegible shit," and I had forgotten that he had converted. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he's, and he said to me, he's like, listen, it's not a big deal. Like that's usually the first response when people just start reading it cold, you need, like, you can't read it without, you know, without proper context, without knowing, you know, sort of the information behind it, why it says, you know, why this is written, why the story is, you know, why the story is repeated, stuff like that. And just that alone was enough to make me be like, Oh, okay. Cause I grew up very, very, very anti-religious. My parents were anti-religious, so I was anti-religious. I, I, I've softened in that regard myself, not not to the point where I've committed to a faith or anything like that. But it was it was interesting to hear my brother, a very rational man, you know, say, "Look, you're you're thinking about this book wrong," you know. And I was like, "Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess I like I wouldn't read Finnegan's Wake without a fucking study guide, you know. Like I need to like I need to know what this sh- what it's actually saying. Like if I take the text at face value, well, this is a thousand years old. I'm not gonna understand it. Like it's a different different language. Uh, for another it's two also weeks, something to what you just said though, Drew, that relates to what Jason was saying, which is in terms of the way that I think it's had a very negative impact on how I think. I mean, I read 
the New Testament when I was like 23. I just read like a, the free version of it that someone would give you on the street. It is the nicest that anyone ever has been to me on the train. There was like old ladies offering to get up so I could sit down. I was like, no, you got it wrong, lady. I am a dirtbag and I'm reading this strictly as a literary experience. Thank you very much. But I'm drunk right now. Yeah, seriously, like you have no idea what you're dealing with. But there's <laughs> the idea that all of this can be not just like sort of used in cynical ways, but used in a way that has like basically no connection to any of the substance of the thing, which is the way that I think that when you see the way that Christianity is used in conservative politics is just basically, you know, like the way that Alliance Defending Freedom the organization that has, uh, you know, overturned Roe v. Wade, whatever, any of these things that has defined the idea of religious liberty is basically you can be as bigoted as you want in all of these ways that we've created anti-discrimination laws to prohibit institutional discrimination along those lines. You can personally feel any way you want as long as you say that this is somehow related to your religion without demonstrating in any way that it is related to your religion, without saying, you know, this is what they teach at my church without being in a church. It makes the whole text and the whole, the broader idea of faith look suspect in a way that I think on the merits, it's not. It's just very – it's frustrating to me to see, like, of all the things to be cynical with in this world, like, this is something that's given a lot of people a lot of peace, like, helped a lot of people feel less alone in the world. And then well, the point of faith, turned right? around and used to just make people feel more alone in the world is a fucking shitty thing to yeah. do, in my opinion. I mean, I think, like, going back to – Going back to this work, the combined – the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament combined, um, or, or either one of them in ISO – the the themes of the, the this collected work of documents are anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism. Um, like you can find feminism all throughout. I'll point it out. Like Genesis one two, the Hebrew word for for the spirit is feminine. Um, like and like Jesus holds open doors for the ladies too. Yes, I think yes. is a really cool thing for him. Like Jesus empowered women. Luke chapter one is a woman saying, "We are going to take down the Roman Empire." How much more awesome is this anything than that? <laughs> um, and like that's the just first... like the plot of Rebel Moon too. Which is cool. <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> the first preachers of the resurrection are women. Like yeah, the the Bible is in a lot of ways like considering its contexts radical and even considering our current context there are parts that go to like there's you know, huge swaths of the bible are like hey if you're rich fuck you like <laughs> the huge swaths of the bible are like hang on hang on you kept more of your stuff than you needed that belongs to poor people if you don't give it to them your entire country will be obliterated right like parts of the bible are very very harsh uh anti-capitalism um and then to take from that, missing that as a kid well, I, I, it's crazy i don't know it's crazy how they take that and then they focus on like two verses that use the word homosexuality as of 1946 didn't until then didn't until then but once that appeared those were the two most important verses um but yeah it's it's once you go back you realize how much of the stuff that certain people preach can be defanged and how much they're basing on vibes um and it might feel impossible to show the, those people that they're missing out a lot but i mean I'm here right now. I was raised to be one of them. It is possible. It is possible to change minds. Uh, for another two weeks, Jason, you're giving 100% of the proceeds from this book to the Trevor Project. You've given $40,000 already. You're going to give more. Uh, once the proceeds revert to you, how much cocaine will you buy? <laughs> Uh, as a father, to, the I'll answer to your question. As, as, a, as a father, I'll, I'll have to check with my uh, my accounting team to see exactly <laughs> how much we can uh, how much we can compile. A uh, small I'll, I'll share. I'll have enough to share. Don't worry about it. It's a pretty fucking incredible response for a book that's fifteen dollars a throw, though. <laughs> yeah, that's really that remarkable. Yeah, I mean, part of the and um, a book that's woke. Yeah, it's yeah, it's woke. Like it's and you tell me the Bible's woke, woke too. Mm. <laughs> Part of it was our podcast community, um, which every year uh, rings up like almost seven figures for refugee resettlement um, charities, thanks to Holly Anderson and Spencer Hall, the work they do with uh, an Atlanta refugee charity. Um, our podcast community is like already primed to just throw money at causes, so. Essentially, I was asking them to do that on top of <laughs> what they already. Yeah, and you get a book out of it, right? Yeah, and you get something to read, and it'll piss off your Sunday school teacher. What more could you ask for? 
Uh, let's open up the phone bag. These are real questions from defector readers and distraction listeners. We're going to do one because we, uh, we've gone over a little bit, but for a good cause. Uh, this is from Kyle Jason. Uh, he says, I've been walking my dogs multiple times a day, every day for 10 years. I can count on one hand the number of times I have not picked up their poop. I feel like most people are like this. My theory is that 85% of people pick up their dog due 99% of the time, and therefore nearly 100% of the poop on the ground is left by the remaining 15% who never pick it up once. Does this sound right? I think those numbers are right. I think um, anytime I have found myself outside uh, without a bag and that situation arises, it's like, fuck, I got to walk all the way back to my house, get yeah. a bag, then yeah. walk all the way here again and pick it up. It's like, and I don't think that's unique. I think that's it's just embarrassing to be the person whose dog is shitting everywhere. Yeah. I've done the thing where I'm like, fuck, I don't have a bag. I have gone and gotten like a leaf. Like I try to find the largest, sturdiest leaf. <laughs> and then you want, I wrap, a big, you want a big, strong leaf. You don't. Yeah. Then I wrap it up like I'm steaming a piece of fucking halibut in the thing. Say, right? Like it's some tilapia and a banana leaf. Do not eat this. I'm also, I'm at an advantage because I, I can't smell. So like if I get some on my hand, like it's gross, but I can't smell it. So I'm not like, I'm not going to barf. Like I'm like, ah, shit, literally. And then I like, you know, I go wash my hands. Very, very vigorously, but at least I like when it's when I have to handle shit. I have more of a stomach for handling shit than than someone who doesn't have severe brain damage. So that's very nice to know. I like that that question was basically written in the like Bernie Sanders voice. Like it has a kind of like wow in a society where eighty five percent of people <laughs> pick up their dog shit. Why <laughs> it's very gratifying to me to be able to transpose that onto a written. I am text. asking you once again to curb your dog because <laughs> I, the thing is, I don't know that you guys have had this experience because I know it's I don't know exactly where Jason lives, but I live you know in a pretty dense city at this point. I have seen people that are walking their dogs, let the dog shit, and then just, like, walk away from it. You know, like, a dog responds more. Like, after a dog poops where it does the little kicky thing, yeah, where yeah, it, like, yeah. pretends that it's kicking dirt over it or whatever, even though it's I, on a sidewalk. I've had Carter kick his own shit at me, and I was like, Zaddy. dude! Owned. Can't teach that. <laughs> it's just good it's like, you fucked instincts. up, boy. But, so, in those moments, have you ever encountered someone doing that, and have you said anything? I was surprised that I did say something to a guy once who's let his dog, he was on the phone, his dog took a shit right outside my apartment building, and then he was continuing his walk, and he initially denied that it was his dog that was doing it. We were the only two people on the sidewalk. It was, like, 11 p.m. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm not a confrontational person by nature, but there was a part of me that was, I was insulted first that he did that, and then when he was like, that was some other dog, and I was like, you're definitely wrong. Like, you could not possibly Some secret third dog is the one that shot on the floor. Right, the grassy knoll dog, just like lobbing one in. Yeah, embarrassing. But have you, you, like, been moved to say something in those moments, or have you ever seen anybody even doing that? The only one you just live in a higher functioning society than I do. I, I don't know if I've ever seen one, like, uh, out in public. I did see someone letting their dog shit in our front yard one time. Rude. Um, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but I think by the time I made it outside, it was like, they're gone. I could chase them down or I don't know. Hey, I don't you forgot your poop. Them, so. Yeah, you hey. You forgot hey, your poop, man. Hey, hey, I brought you this. <laughs> the other factor is, um, and I have experience with this, people who, who have their dogs off leash. And they don't know that their dog went into someone's yard and took a dump and then ran back to them or whatever. And I had a neighbor do that. And I did. I I I went to her and I was like, I was like, I was like, your dog took a shit in the yard because he was off leash. And she and she came correct. She's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, it won't happen again. And it has not happened again. Uh, but like the number of people who who do the off-leash thing, particularly here in the suburbs, like you're not gonna do it in New York because you want your dog getting hit by a fucking garbage truck or whatever but right but that is not an unsubstantial number of dog owners i yeah my dad's a violator there he's he has a dog it's a very cute nice little dog but he hasn't like trained it in any way he just wants to have some innate connection with it so he's he doesn't put it on a leash and then sometimes the dog will like run away and he'll be like i was very disappointed by that and like, well i'd imagine you were sir like luckily <laughs> there's like dog right you could i could buy you one of those whatever his name is like the caesar million i can get you for like 10 bucks i could get you a book that would prevent this from happening but i know that you would rather just not 
have to think of yourself as someone who needs to put a leash on a dog. Teach you to be pack leader. That's right, exactly. Uh, We're having Caesar on next week. I'm really excited about that. Uh, Jason Kirk, the novel is Hell's a World Without You, which is very, very funny. It's available now. Uh, like I said, it's already generated over $40,000 for the Trevor Project, and you can be part of that, too. Uh, Jason also is a uh, co-host of the Shutdown Fullcast and the newsletter director at The Athletic. Jason, thank you for coming on. You're a lovely, lovely guest. Yeah, thanks, thanks fellas. Man. Thanks for having me. Very fun. Yeah, our, our pleasure. Uh, Eric Silver is our producer. Brandon Google is our editor. And our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. Ads and production services by Multitude. And you can subscribe to Defector.com. Go to Defector and hit that subscribe button. You can also email us at distraction at Defector.com or even call us at 909-726-3720 and leave a message. That's 909-PANERA-0. We will see you guys next week. Jason Kirk, love to have you on. Thanks, man. Bye, everybody. Bye.